Oh, that warms my heart. Resounding. Um, it's really awesome to be here today. Uh, we've been given the immense opportunity, the blessing, I dare say, to be able to share a little bit with y'all today. The austere privilege. Austere privilege. Um, yeah, today, um, the talk that we're going to give on is specifically around Exodus. And um, we, we called it the Easter eggs of Exodus, which I, I feel like deserves a two-pronged explanation. One, I liked all the E's, Easter eggs of Exodus, yeah, but nice also uh, Easter eggs as in little things that are really fun and cool to find, but they have to be found. We're basically going to be going over the story of Exodus and touching up on things that me and Ryan didn't find our first time through. I won't, I won't assume anyone else had trouble finding them. Awesome, and uh, just to do a little reiteration, um, I kind of like slip-ups because they really humanize the speakers and it allows for there to be a little wiggle room of uh, grace, which is dearly appreciated on our part, both of us. Um, the scripture today, okay, it was supposed to be one and two. We made that mistake. We didn't translate it properly. So now we're gonna give just a little now we're down on the mortal level. Right. Exactly. Now you can relate with us. Um, and God spoke all these words saying, we got that part. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so just hang on to that little verse or the remainder of the thing because it pertains. Um, well, uh, let's see. <laughs> all right. Uh, the first thing we're going to start well, not at the beginning of Exodus. We're going to start when Moses talks to God in the desert. Yeah, the burning bush. It's sort of where the uh, story starts. And uh, the, the purpose of starting here is because our first little subject we're going to tackle is the concept or the popular belief of, we all know the saying that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And there's the popular belief of what that means. And there's what we believe is the actual definition of what it means. I'm going to start getting into it. Let's be so bold. Um, a lot of the times people will make a large differentiation between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament because of the tone and the actions. They seem to at times be antithetical. And what we want to sort of touch on is that in the story of Exodus, it's often quoted as um, God being unnecessarily harsh, whereas we would hopefully like to recontextualize the story within the span of the great controversy. There's a lot of parallels that we can look to and maybe better understand. Um, let's see here. All right, so Moses uh, was talking to the Lord in the desert, and he went on his way to Egypt, and Exodus 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now that sounds pretty cut and dry. God will use his power supernaturally to puppeteer Pharaoh so that he won't be able to say no to the things. And the popular belief is God forces him to say no and then beats him down for saying no. That's a very popular belief that makes God unpopular. True that. It's a rather harsh interpretation, but what we'll try to touch on is that that's not necessarily the case. Um, if you actually we go to the next part of the story, it has, um, you know, Moses and Aaron going before um, Pharaoh, 
and they say, the, our God, the Hebrew God, has asked us to come forward and ask you to let the people go. And Pharaoh's response is very interesting. He says, Exodus 8, 15 through 32. Turning pegs in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh says, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Um, he's saying, what the Jehovah? What the heck is that? I've never heard of it before. You're crazy. Yeah, your God is foreign to me. By what authority is it that you come in and compel me to do this thing? And essentially, um, he's kind of a non-believer in a sense. He is rooted in the culture and in the theological beliefs of Egypt, and he has absolutely no intention of uh, giving any sort of credence to a foreign god, one that may not even exist. So we've established that Pharaoh doesn't necessarily, he, well, not necessarily, he doesn't believe in the Hebrew god. And for the whole narrative of God forcefully took control of Pharaoh and made him say no, there's something kind of weird with that logic, because when you go to the plagues, the first five of them, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which, I don't know, for me, it's kind of hard to fit into the sort of the negative narrative. It goes Pharaoh, 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 then God, then back to Pharaoh, and the rest are God. It's kind of strange. Why is that? Well, uh, it's because uh, kind of the etymology of the word, uh, we, we read harden your heart, and we think, oh yes, he's you know, magically doing it. But uh, in the context, I could harden Ryan's heart. I could call him stinky. That hardened his heart towards me. He could mad. step on my foot, and he would be hardening my heart. Our actions can anger one another. Mm -hmm. and they could say, well, you choose whether or not I make you mad. Well, yeah, but you make it really easy to be mad at you when you do something to earn it. It's the actual action God takes, you know, the plagues, that makes Pharaoh's heart hardened. But if that's the case, how come the first five Pharaoh's hardening his own heart? It's not like he's casting these plagues upon himself. Well, it's really interesting because it all ties around to Pharaoh believing in God. Let's say, I don't know, someone went up to you and goes, you gotta watch out. There's a little goblin that's following you around. And what he does is he takes your little sofa or your little footstool and he pulls it out into places that you didn't set it. And when you walk out, you stub your toe. I hate that little guy, he's very mean. Most likely you would think this person is crazy. And let's, let's say that like the next day you pow, stubbed your toe. You stubbed, it's, it's terrible, it hurts so bad. You wouldn't be angry at the goblin. There is no such thing. It's you would just, have to be crazy. It's just coincidence. Let's say you stubbed your toe every single day on these magically moving furniture. By the end of the week, you'd probably start to go, there might actually be a goblin going around my house moving things and stubbing my toe. Then when you stub your toe after believing in this said goblin, you won't be angry at, oh, I'm so silly. You'll be angry at the goblin. Pharaoh, in the beginning when all these plagues coming, he's just like, eh, eh. You know, these are just things that are happening. But we see when Pharaoh, first by Pharaoh, then it kind of wavers over to, maybe there is a God doing this to me. Wavers back to, no, no, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then the rest three, he's angry at God because he finally believes in God. Because in the beginning, he didn't know what a Jehovah was. But when he finally accepts that God's existence, he puts his anger and his negative feelings towards God, who he believes is doing this to him now. Mm -hmm. So now, with that context in the way, let's talk about the plagues themselves. Because often people say, well, how come God didn't just, you know, skip to the end? Or how come he just didn't... Um, Why drag it out? Exactly. Nine plagues? Um, 
and it's really interesting. Uh, it's part of, it goes into the idea of there being almost like a period of probation. Like, if Pharaoh at the first play would have said, I'll let your people go, he would have. Or at the second, or at the third, or the fourth, or like one through ten. He would have let them go. Um, and God provided, even though he knew Pharaoh's response, he provided for there to be a period where everybody could stop and observe the situation and see that even to the very extent of the punishment, which landed themselves in the 10 plague, there was no shadow of turning. I like to look at the plagues and rather than think of, oh, God really didn't like those Egyptians. When you stop and think about the entire process in its entirety, uh, well, I at least begin to see, I think he at least begins to see, that the plagues aren't just an expression for God's love for the Hebrews, it's also an expression of his love for the Egyptians, because he could have just skipped to the last one. He could have just wiped them all out. It would have been a lot easier. But he gives them like nine chances to turn back. And it's not like the Israelites were gonna get hurt. The Egyptians were gonna get hurt. But he gave them opportunities to be spared from these terrible things, because at the end of the day, the Hebrews had to leave. That wasn't negotiable on the table. But how many people got hurt in that process? Of course God didn't want anyone to suffer. And when you stop and consider, well, did God truly care about the Egyptians? Some Egyptians left with the Israelites. They packed up their things and said, we want to go live with you, maybe take on your traditions. We want to be a part of the God who has demonstrated his reality and power in the first plagues. So through this process of the first plagues being discomfort and eventually destruction and then finally death, it's through this process that some Egyptians actually have their minds changed, that, that they go and they you know, join, they, I guess they sort of become God's people at that point. Become culturally, they become Israelites. Exactly. What's really interesting about that is, uh, I want to get the right point. Ah, yes. Um, I also wanted to touch on this because I think it's cool uh, that all of the Egyptian gods, and it's also kind of plays into the thing that the plagues were also a little bit of ministry to the Egyptians because each plague debunks one of the Egyptian gods. And it goes through actually the little god hierarchy of, you know, who's greater than everyone else. And like, just for example, like the god, uh, you know all the plague with all the Egyptian frogs? That is basically God uh, taking on the existence of Hek, uh, the god of fertility with a frog head. And so, and you know, a lot of them share the heads of the plagues and all that stuff. And each one of them has their little themes that God matches and say, no, they are not the god of this. I am, and even when the whole, uh, all of Egypt got really, really dark for that long time, he was basically taking on uh, the existence of Ra, the sun god, and he was really up there in their thing. And so with each of the plagues, he actually debunks their religion in its entirety. And of course, the final plague uh, targets and discredits the most powerful god in all of Egyptian mythos, Pharaoh, because he is their god king, their morning and evening star. Each one of the plagues wound up being a rebuttal or a thesis against the Egyptian culture. So its purpose was to sort of stir up a kind of soberness towards the situation and inspire a new kind of living. Um, rolling back to the little thing of uh, how a lot of these plagues are actually very merciful towards the Egyptians, as even the part when, you know, the Hebrews were putting the blood above their uh, uh, young little houses to be spared from the final plague, 
it's not like only Hebrews could do this. This was offered to anyone. It was no secret, and no one could say, oh, God isn't real. That's not going to happen. They had nine, I'll call them ministries, to show, yes, God is real. The Egyptian gods are not real. And then finally, they gave them the option up to everyone that, hey, put this blood above your door, and it's like a bended knee, and you will be passed over. And one of the things that we can look at and sort of analyze and maybe get some information out of is the fact that um, the final plague, the plague of death, it, it would have affected the Israelites too. It was absolutely non-discriminatory on the basis of ethnicity or culture. If you were a Hebrew and you did not have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, you, the life of your firstborn would have been taken. Now, why is that? That's a very odd kind of stipulation on what most of the plagues have been spared. And part of the symbolism that we actually get to see is that the nature of sin, when fully grown, it yields death. Nobody, not based on your culture or your works or where you're from, can give you eternal life. It doesn't matter how orthodox or how much of a Jew you are, without the blood of Jesus, you're just like everybody else, just as lost. And I think it's really cool that uh, you know some Egyptians did this because some Egyptians left with the Israelites and they had to be alive in order to do that. So it's, in a sense, it's an exercise of non-discriminatory love on God's part. It wasn't wholly based on Hebrew and Egyptian. Just as with all of mankind, it doesn't matter where you're from or what it is that you look like. It's the idea or the character of God that you subscribe to and it's your willingness to submit mm -hmm. for the sake of salvation. That is right. Um, and what's really interesting is that, again, we want to draw parallels between Exodus, which is sort I of like this part. Yeah, a microcosm of the overarching narrative of the Bible. Kind of explains why some of the things are so specific as the way they are, is because it's really cool. It draws like really good parallels between Exodus and the end times in Revelation. Um, one of those things is that we see in Pharaoh absolutely no shadow of a doubt that not only is there a God, but he is the God of gods. He is who he says he is. And he can see the mercy that he acts out on his people and even some of the Egyptians. And even when met with the absolute authority of Pharaoh, he says, um, no. Temporarily, during the final plague, he lets the Egyptians, uh, the Israelites go. He yields. He yields. But not out of actual, uh, the brokenness of a contrite heart. It's simply because the weight of the punishment is so great, he yields temporarily out of a self, sense of self-preservation. Because immediately, once he lets them go, he returns to his sort of um, resting state of mind. He says, I want to go and I want to act against this God and his people. Kill everybody. Exactly. Without even a plan, just go do it. And that's cool because, uh, you know, when the second resurrection comes and all the people who weren't saved get brought back and they look to God, it's just like Pharaoh. Because they all see God in his glory. You can kind of see that as, I don't know, the last plague. And they finally bend their knees. And this was really hard for me to understand, but I thought this little helped me understand. They all stop and they say, you are God, you are right. When they're shown all of their sins, in a sense, they, they let the Hebrews go. And even then, even after the entirety of everything is revealed to them, God's character, their own faults, why they're at where they are, and they agree, yes, you made the right decision. Just like Pharaoh, they're going to pick themselves up and they're going to go and try to kill God. Just as Pharaoh rushed forward into the crashing waves of the Red Sea, so too were the lost rushing into the revealing of God's character, which is ultimately heartbreaking, but is also ultimately a tool of their own wants. 
Um, another really cool thing is, jumping back a little bit, uh, all the uh, plagues and yo, the Egyptians that got saved, that is a great little analogy for the end times. Because, you know, people could say, why doesn't Jesus just come back right now? I mean, it'd save us a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, why do we have to deal with any of this end time stuff, these birthing pains, birthing pains, plagues? Uh, we think, oh, he's just being mean at this point, but he's not. He's giving all of those lost souls, Egyptians, more time. That, even though it seems that it's just prolonging all this terribleness, what it really is, is mercy for those who aren't saved yet. And they may seem bad, just like the plagues. They were terrible. And, you know, the birthing pains, and as things get worse and worse, more natural disasters, more atrocities being happening. But they are bringing people to God. And just like uh, how there were, as terrible as the plagues were, thanks to them, there were Egyptians who left out of Egypt, you might say left out of Babylon, um, and joined the uh, uh, Israelites and you know, following God. Because of these birthing pains, this elongated time, which we see is pointless. I mean, aren't things bad enough? Why doesn't he just come back? There will be lost people who find God because of it. Exactly. Just as the plagues were probationary, the time we live now until Christ comes back is also probationary because there are people who can be brought out of the symbolic kingdom of Babylon, our world, just as there are Egyptians who can be brought out of Egypt. Um, another interesting thing is that finally the Israelites cross the Red Sea. They're out of Egypt. It's the exodus. It's the event that the book is written after. And then uh, God wants to sort of lay down the law. Um, so he begins to write the Ten Commandments. And at the start of it, it's the thing, I am the Lord your God. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give you these rules, and here's why you should listen to me. He says, um, God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. One of the first things he says as to set up his character and his authority to call forth a certain kind of behavioral pattern out of, out of his people isn't just the fact that I'm God. I'm more powerful. I know everything. And by I all mean, means, that work. If and he just comes and goes, hey, I'm God, you that, better do what I said. That's solid reasoning. Okay, if he's God, then yeah, I want to listen to him. But he makes an appeal to the fact that it's not only his role as creator, it's how he uses his authority, his behavioral patterns towards the Israelites. He says, why should you listen to me? Because I want you to be free. Because you have mistaken rebellion with a kind of freedom, and it has landed you in shackles. I want to set you free for freedom's sake, because that's how I would have you be. And because you can see this kind of character in me, because you know how I feel towards you, I want you to do as I instruct so we can facilitate this culture of freedom. I just think, yeah, like he just said, it's really cool because rather than just saying, I am God, do what I say, he says, remember what I've done for you, how far I've gone for you. I don't want you to obey me simply because I God. I am God. I want you to obey me because you love me, because you know I'm good. I'm not just God. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's why I want you to listen to me. Exactly. And throughout the course of the ensuing Israelite history. They're forming their own culture based off of the laws of God. It's really interesting that God litters their culture with different symbolism of freedom and liberation. 
like most people think of Christianity and all the rules, and it's keeping you down, man. You don't get to do what you want. Mm -hmm. But a big theme is freedom. Like, just take the Sabbath, for instance. God came about and he brought up the Sabbath, and he goes like, I want you to observe this um, because you were slaves in Egypt. But now you're going to do this. You're going to practice this practice as a sign that I have made you to be free because the kind of person I am, I am the person who is for you. I am here to liberate you. And it's this expression is almost allegiance to me is an expression of liberty. A lot of times we look at the Sabbath, all the rules, think, well, I can't do that, can't do that, and all that stuff. But really, it's just another one of the little, little freedom things God puts in the Bible to remind us. And goes, hey, it's not that you're a slave to all these things. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It is a day when you are free from the world. There's all sorts of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you can even look at the Jubilee, which is seven years, all the slaves, let them go. Because God didn't want a culture of cruel, you know, bondage, bondage. He wanted a culture where they would constantly be brought back around to, oh, uh, God made me to be free, so I'm not gonna do these practices. And here's what's really interesting. When Moses comes down with the first set of the 10 commandments, he sees the people, they got impatient and they built an idol of gold, which is the practices that they did in Egypt. Those were the practices that landed them in Egypt. And here's what's so heartbreaking. It's easy to bring a person out of a system of oppression you just have to remove them but it's hard to you can take the man out of egypt but you can't take egypt out of the man they were still slaves even when they crossed the red sea in their hearts they were still longing after the practices of egypt god constantly says your sins and your selfish desires those things that keep bringing you back around to that dark place they rule you you are a slave to them and they are cruel because they compel you to behave in a way that is antithetical to how I have created you. God's whole mission isn't to bring us out of the literal Egypt or the literal Babylon because it sits right here in our ribcage. That's the hardest part. That's the thing that he's been constantly trying to work against. And it's because Egypt still sits in their hearts that you have heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak all throughout the Old Testament. It was constant re-breaking of covenant for the sake of being loyal to an abusive master who facilitates a culture of slavery, i.e. sin. And um, of course, in the whole span of the great controversy, um, ultimately Christ does deliver his people out of Egypt, out of Babylon forever in the way that truly counts by delivering us from our sins, saying they never even happened. He recreates us to be what we were meant to be, more free than ever before. It was Satan's lie that said, your free will is only fully exercised when it's fully exhausted in every single way. Couldn't be further from the truth. It's because of that we live in a world that's so hard to exist in, why there's so much injustice, so suffocating, suffocating. But God looks at that and says, I didn't create them to live like this. I created them to be kings and queens and to be free in the truest sense, the sense that I have come to know and I will come to show them in Christ. And of course, one day that day will come when we are led as an exodus, not just off of this earth. This earth isn't the problem. It's out of the kingdom that rests in our hearts.